first scripture is going to come from First uh, Peter three fifteen. First Peter three fifteen. And we'll start with uh, a word of prayer. All right, gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the time that we gather in in this service. After we've sung our praises to you and and we've gathered around the table and we have received this uh, great meal from you and we have shown our allegiance to you by the giving of our our tithes and offerings today and now to come to this time and and just to await the truth that you have for us and it might be something different for each one of us and it may be something that really we're not even focusing on, but something that just triggers a thought or triggers another scripture that makes a connection that turns over a new leaf in our faith and helps us to grow. Father, we ask for these times and we ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to share some Statistics from two different studies that are consistent with one another. Uh, and I don't want them to get you down. I just want to, to show a little bit about where we are in our, our nation today and the church. This uh, first study comes from George Barna. And you might have heard me quote him before. George Barna is a, a very popular, uh, what we would call a pollster for lack of a better term. But uh, he's one of those that doesn't take the numbers and make them fit, you know, his agenda. He, he does the, uses the numbers and does them correctly, which that can be done. And the second person also uh, that I'm going to quote today, Beamer, does the same thing. And they're both Christian men. They're both uh, wanting to just see where, where people are according to their faith. The first one was done uh, several years back uh, by George Barna, and he concluded that a majority of 20-somethings 61% of today's young adults had been churched at one point during their teen years but are now spiritually disengaged. And that means not actively attending church, reading the Bible, or praying. Now, the other study shows that, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one, a mass exodus is underway. Most youth of today will not be coming to church tomorrow. Nationwide polls and denominational reports are showing that the next generation is calling it quits of the traditional church. And it's not just happening on the nominal fringe. It's happening at the core of the faith. In other words, what they're saying is it's not happening in the liberal denominations that's gone away from the Bible, the liberal churches. These are in... Uh, churches that are conservative with the Word of God. Teach the Word of God. Believe what it says. Believe that it's not an error. An errant. And this is who these uh, young people, uh, that's where they grew up in these churches. So those reports show that the next generation is calling quits on the traditional church, and it's not just happening on the nominal fringe, it's happening at the core of the faith, and that's what they mean by those 
core of the faith are those churches. The study group that they used was divided into an equal number of males, females, and two age groups. They made 20,000 phone calls. That's a lot. Normally, normally what happens is they make 1,000 phone calls, and, and then uh, from those 1,000 phone calls, they, uh, they just lump it all together. They targeted this. They, so they called 20,000 people, tried to find out what church they were a part of, and uh, then from that, they gleaned 1,000 out of those 20,000 phone calls. And just half of them were male and female of each group. And each of the groups was half were 25 to 29, and the other half were 20 to 24. Okay, so we're talking about the college age, out of their teens into the 20s and up. And they asked them why they believe they're no longer going to church. And this is the answers that they came with. Number one, 12% said that it was a boring service. Two, 12% said legalism. Legalism is just uh, adhering to usually a man-made idea around a scriptural principle that shows no love and no grace. So legalism, 12%. Boring service, 12%. Next, 11%, the hypocrisy of leaders, meaning that leaders in the church were not consistent with what they were preaching and teaching. There was an inconsistency there, what they saw. And for, uh, the next group, 10% said it was too political. 9% said they were self-righteous people in the church. 7% said they were, uh, it was a distance from their home that they stopped going. 6% said they were not relevant to their personal growth in their life. 6% said God will not condemn people to hell. 5% said the Bible was not relevant or not practical. And 5% couldn't find my preferred denomination in my area. That's why they stopped going to church in their 20s in that way. So that was what they say. Now, oftentimes, you know, in counseling, we're told not to ask people, uh, well, why did you do that? Because oftentimes the reason that they think they didn't do that or did that thing is really not the true reason. And so they found in this study when they began to get deeper into questioning. And on that further investigation, they found the true reason, reasons for all of this. And uh, there were two uh, powerful application points that can be made from this. Because they deduced it all down. And I'm, just, I'm trying to, this, this is page after page that, that I read here. I'm trying to reduce it down, not, not to bore you, but just to get to the point. What is it that we can do to help this situation? First thing was to defend and teach the Bible from the very first verse of Scripture. And there's a great need for practical and relevant apologetics teaching for all ages. Now, I'll get to that word. Don't let the word apologetics scare you if you're not familiar with it. The second thing is uh, to live an authentic, basically, uh, biblically, sorry, biblically-based Christian life as individuals and as the church so people will see Christ reflected in all that is done and stop the hypocrisy. Those were the two things that they concluded that would have would have helped and will help 
bring these back to the church. And, and we talk a lot about each one of those, but the next three weeks I want to focus on that first one where it says that we need to make uh, an effort in the church to teach the practical and relevant application of the Bible in people's life through apologetics. Now, what is apologetics? We're going to define that here in just a moment. And so the next three weeks, we're going to look at, at, at three areas of apologetics and why we believe what we believe. So we have not done well in our youth uh, preparing them to defend their faith in the secular world. You've got to think about it. How much time does a student spend in instruction in the classroom? And I know I'm in public education, and I'm saying this, but it's true with a secular mindset. It's inconsistent with our Christian worldview. The mindset that they are under, even in a, under a Christian teacher, what they're taught is not biblical. It's secular. At one time, it was more biblical. Go back and look at some of the books that, that you were used uh, prior to 1940 in, t in, in instruction in the classroom and compare that to some of the things today you would be shocked and surprised. Not saying that we need to pull all of our kids out, homeschool. But we need to make certain that our kids know what they believe and why they believe what they believe and can defend it. And make sure that they see how the Bible is practical to their lives. And then we, once we teach that, once we show that to our kids, we've got to live it. We've got to model it. They've got to experience it through us and living it out and not see the inconsistencies. And when we do, as we all do, make a mistake, we've got to come to them and say, you know, I shouldn't have done that. That is inconsistent with what I know is right. God would not be happy with me living that way. And so we've got to find that consistency there and help them in their path and growing so that they can grow up and be strong adults. In other words, we haven't been very well. I gave you that scripture there, 1 Peter 3.15. We haven't done as well as we could have across the board in preparing ourselves and our children and our youth to live this way. 1 Peter 3.15. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. That's got to be first and foremost. Christ is Lord. Not just at church, but in our homes and in everything we do, Christ is Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give you the reason for the hope that you have. So we've got to be able to defend our faith. We've got to be able to say, I believe this because... And we've got to be able to do that with gentleness and respect, according to Peter. So we've got to learn to defend our faith. That word apologetics that we talked about earlier uh, is a, is a, comes from a Greek word. And uh, it's apologia is the Greek word. 
not important to remember that, but it, it's, it means to speak in return or defend oneself. In the Roman and Greek cultures, uh, it was a formal defense, either in response to a prosecution in a court of law or by extension as a literary mode. So you can use it to defend your faith as if you're being cross-examined, or you can use it as you're writing, speaking, using a Christian worldview. Those are the two ways that apologetics uh, should be used for us as Christians. So it's a time when we define what we believe and why we believe it and what the Bible says and, and, and why we hold, uh, hold to that 100%. That's the apologetic side of it. Now, uh, in this study that we're going to be doing, we're going to first uh, today view, uh, get the biblical view of the earth. Then the uh, next we're going to look at the natural scientific systems in the universe in biology. Why, uh, and, you know, uh, biology itself on the, third, on the third Sunday. Now, some people would be shocked to say, well, what? Those things aren't covered in the Bible. That's, that's science. The science and, and the Bible have, have nothing to do with one another. I'd stand to differ with you. If you look and, and really, truly open your eyes as we go through here, you will see how, number one, all throughout the centuries, the scientific or the philosophy of the day contradicted what was said in the Bible, and centuries later, it was found out the Bible was right all along. And it would also amaze you to see that much of the scientific discoveries that had been made have been made by Christians first. Whole areas of science have been established by Christians because of their view of Scripture. And we'll look at a few of those today and the weeks to come. So let's go ahead and kind of see what the Bible says about the earth. And why does all this matter? I think you understand now why it does because we're losing so many, because they cannot defend their faith. And it's challenged. And if it's challenged on the very, very points that come in, in uh, Genesis and then can be taught, then it will send ripples throughout their whole faith. If we can't conclude that God is the creator and the earth was created, as the Bible said, in seven days, where there was evening and there was morning, that we are in error. And we can throw the rest of everything else out because if you cut out the first part of the Bible, why can't you cut out the rest of it? I'm just going to be honest with you. So we've got to know this because we have, we have grandkids, we have uh, our own children, we have nieces and nephews, we have our, our neighbor kids and other adults around us all the time that are in error. And these things stand in their way. The first thing, the Bible reveals the spherical shape of the earth. Now, we were all hopefully taught in school about uh, what happened when Christopher Columbus was, was going out to, to explore. What did they think was going to happen? You can say this out loud. What did you think they were gonna ha was going to happen when Christopher Columbus left on those ships eventually? Sail off the edge of the world, right? <laughs> Is that what you were going to say? Sail off the edge of the world? Yeah, so... It, it, they, came, they came to know that, right, after a time. But he was the one that kind of really took, took that by storm. Now, notice it was Spain. It was a Catholic nation at the time. 
a Christian nation and they believed that the world was flat, all they had to do was read Isaiah 40.22. Isaiah 40.22 says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Now isn't that amazing? Not only does it talk about the circle of the earth, but it talks about God and His view of people on the earth. So that can throw out right now all of those people that, that are deists. Now a deist believes that God created the world and now he doesn't care. He just like the clockmaker that made a clock and gave it away and now he doesn't have anything to do with it. Now God's deeply involved with it because it's, he says, and its people are like grasshoppers. So from God's perspective, God is looking down and sees us. He's very active in our life. And it says he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads out uh, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. I don't know if you ever put a tent out, but how you stretch the corners. So, you know, you got to spread it out in order to raise it up. That's what God does with the universe. Tells you how big, how powerful God is. If you don't have that view of God, then you're not consistent with Scripture. And if you can't say that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth as creator and as God and as powerful, then you're not being consistent. How can you say that God is able to work in your life and, and overcome the problems that you have in your life when you can't even believe that he created you? You see, we get so many problems that come out from this. Well, the Bible here indicates that the earth is round. The circle of the earth is cer certainly fitting. And now we know this. You know, in, in Christopher Columbus' day, they weren't certain. They didn't know. They thought it was flat. They thought he would go off the edge. But now we have gone beyond that enough to see pictures taken from space and looking at the earth. And one of the astronauts said it looks like a blue marble there in the sky. Marbles around. <laughs> so we know there we have scientific, you know, evidence to show that the Bible was right all along. Twenty-two hundred years before it was proven <laughs> that the earth was not flat. Here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah records God saying that he sees the earth. And he's above, enthroned above the circle of the earth. 2,200 years of misinterpretation. Amazing. And the church, uh, you know, had the answer in those days. And at the church even had that same view. That the earth was flat. It was accepted. Well, the church at that time didn't study scripture, didn't apply Scripture to their present day. We don't want to make the same mistake and that's why it's important for us to go through and see all of these things and it does matter to our faith. Another verse that in indicates the uh, spherical nature of our planet is Job 26.10. This uh, verse teaches that God has uh, inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of the light and darkness. This boundary uh, between light and darkness separates... Uh, Night and day. 
in science it's called the Terminator. You know, I'll be back. Uh, not the same. Okay, not the same Terminator, but that helps you remember it. And you can actually see from space as, as night and day travels all the way around the world in a straight line. All the way around. There is a definite night and there is a definite day. And scripture says that God set that in place. Dr. Jason uh, Lyles states in an article, of course a scientist, he says, someone standing on the Terminator would be experiencing either a sunrise or a sunset. They are going from day to night or from night to day. The Terminator, the Terminator is always a circle because the earth is round. One of the great delights of observing the moon through a small telescope is to look at it, its, its Terminator. It also has a Terminator that goes around. There's day and night on the moon. Especially during the first and third quarter phases when the Terminator is directly down the middle of the moon. The craters are most easily seen at this boundary since the sun is at a low angle and casts very long shadows there. The moon looks particularly three-dimensional when viewed through a telescope during these phases. It is clear that the moon is a sphere, not a flat disk. And if you want to go online and look this up, I'm going to give you the, the website for that at the very end. Hold on, because I get a lot of information from that. So he goes on to say, for the earth, the terminator occurs not on a cratered rocky surface, but primarily on water, since the earth is 70% water. Job 26.10 says he drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. So again, it, it suggests God's eye view of the earth. Again, telling us something about God in this. Now the biblical passage would be nonsense if the earth were flat. Since there would be no terminator, there is no line to step over that separates the day from the night on a flat surface. Either it is day everywhere or it is night everywhere on a hypothetical flat earth. However, the earth does not indeed have a boundary between light and darkness, which is always a circle since the earth is round. So, there he, he states through this that we know that that terminator, that day and night, that line is there and it shows that the earth is round and that God looks down upon that. Uh, it, curiously, many astronomy textbooks credit uh, Pythagoras around uh, 570 to 500 B.C. with this idea uh, saying the first uh, that the earth is round. This is written, the Isaiah passage was written around the 700s B.C. and Job is thought to have been written around 2000 B.C. So you see, sometimes history is wrong <laughs> in the history books because it leaves out, because they don't want to get too religious, the Bible. And yet the Bible is more accurate. For millennia, the Bible is accurate. Scrolls have been found, you know, that are, that are to the, nearly this time, that uh, 
Pythagoras was uh, was alive at 500, the Dead Sea Scrolls go close back to that time frame in the, the BCs, and we see that what we have now in English, in the original languages, there's one one thousandth percent in error, which would bring it down to maybe a, a letter being wrong somewhere, but not changing the meaning, changing a spelling or something grammatical, but not the meaning. Isn't that amazing? God has protected his word. God has protected all of this. And so we need to understand that, you know, just because it's, you know, it's on the internet or it's, it's printed in a book, it's not always right. And so what do we have to do? We have to approach it and, and be, you know, smart enough, wise enough to say, I'm going to check and see what the Bible says about this. That's why I want to give you this website later on. And it'll show you that and a lot of resources if you're interested in this way. Uh, once again, we see that the Bible is exactly right. So the earth is round. We took a little bit of time on that one. The others we're going to go a little quicker on. The Bi Secondly, the Bible reveals the fact that the earth is suspended. Job 26.7 says, He spreads out the northern skies over empty spaces. He suspends the earth over nothing. It, it's great. Uh, the, the term suspending the earth would be equivalent to us taking an ornament and hanging it on a tree. That's the picture that the word brings us. It paints in our mind. But in this case, there's no tree for God to hang it on. God takes it and suspends it in midair and stays there on its own. How? God's powerful. He's got the gravitational forces. He's got the universe. All of it, he understands because he created it, and it happens. Again, Dr. Jason Lyle states that the earth floats in space. A very interesting verse was God states that, uh, that God hangs the earth, the earth on nothing. The verse expresses in a poetic, poetic way the fact that the earth is unsupported by any other object. And that's quite unnatural for ancient writers to imagine. Indeed, the earth does float in space. Of course, now we have those pictures taken from space that show it floating, suspended there in space in the cosmic void. And once again, the earth literally hangs on nothing, just as the Bible stated. The Bible also reveals the existence of mountains and canyons in the sea. Uh, 2 Samuel 22.16, the valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare <coughs> Excuse me, at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. So here we see the very foundations, it says, of the earth. The valleys of the sea were exposed. Well, if there's a valley, what else does there have to be? Valleys are created when the mountains are on each side. And so we see that that is true. Now, if you think the Bible is not accurate when it comes to earth science, let's compare this verse with uh, what I found on the NOAA website. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration website. Now, surely we would know that a government website, a government agency would not, in this day and age, do anything 
that was overly religious. And especially, more than likely, would not print anything from Scripture. But listen to what is said about mountains and valleys in the ocean. ocean. Again, taken directly as a quote from the website. The longest mountain range on earth is called the Mid-Ocean Ridge, spanning 40,389 miles around the globe. It's truly a global landmark. About 90% of the Mid-Ocean Range is under the ocean. The system of mountains and valleys crisscrosses the globe, resembling the stitches, resembling the stitches in a baseball. It's formed by the movement of the Earth's tectonic plates. As the great plates push forward, uh, push apart mountains and valleys form along the seafloor as magma, ri magma rises up to fill the gaps. As the earth's crust spreads, new ocean floor is created. This process little, literally renews the surface of our planet. If you look at the uh, map of the world volcanoes, you'll find that most of them form along the boundaries of this great system. In fact, the global mid-ocean ridge system forms the largest single volcanic features on Earth. The mid-ocean range, ridge, excuse me, mid-ocean ridge consists of thousands of individual volcanoes or volcanic ridges segments, which periodically erupt. Once again, how many thousands of years did it take science to come to the point? to see what Scripture has said all along, that there were valleys in the sea. And there we have it. So once again, long before science got there, there was the Bible showing the truth. Next, uh, the Bible states that there was existence of watery paths, ocean currents in the sea. For me, this is the one that was most, most amazing. That brings kind of all of what we've been talking about together when I found this out. Uh, Psalms 8 8 says, The birds in the sky and the fish in the sea all swim the paths of the seas. Now, when I think of the seas, I don't think of paths. I think of paths when I'm walking on earth, and I know that because I'm not going to be walking on the ocean. And surely, unless someone has information, thousands of years ago that their paths in the sea they're not going to write that either so the psalmist wrote this psalm knowing through inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there were paths in the seas and quite interesting something very interesting about this verse listen closely American naval officer and oceanographer Matthew Murray lived from 1806 to 1873. Long, a long time ago. He was a Christian who loved reading his Bible. He also had no doubts about its accuracy and these facts led him to some remarkable discoveries in science. I'll stop right there for just a minute. Here we see exactly what we're talking about. Why we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. It also shows us that if we truly adhere to the Word of God, God's wisdom can lead us into some amazing discoveries and some amazing things, not just about spiritual things, but about His creation also. 
Murray entered the U.S. Navy in 1825, but an accident in 1839 partially disabled him. So he left active seaman. Scripture comes to mind. All things work together for good. Those who love the Lord. See if it doesn't apply to him. Three years later, still with the Navy, he was appointed superintendent of the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington and also of the U.S. Depot of Charts and Instruments, making of maps, including maps of the sea. Over the next 19 years, Murray devoted himself to studying the winds, clouds, weather, and ocean features, as well as the Bible. I think he did that on government time. Just don't let them know. <laughs> in his Bible studies, the words of Psalm 8 stuck in his mind. This very verse that we just read, it stuck in his mind. Murray determined that if God's word said there were paths in the oceans, then there must be paths, so he set out to find them. He studied old ship's logs, and from there uh, compiled charts of the ocean, the wind, and sea currents. He did an amazing thing. He took bottles, he made drift bottles. I don't know if you understand what a Ever heard what a drift bottle is? But a drift bottle is a weighted bottle. And he put notes inside the bottle, just like you always hear. But instead of floating on top, the drift bottles just go a little bit below the surface. So the wind's not driving them. The water is actually driving them. And so what he did is he put the address on there in, in a few languages. And, and that way, whoever got that could see that and said, would you please send this note back to me and tell me where it landed? And they were numbered, and he had this elaborate system. And so these bottles were going all over the world, and he was getting this information back. You know, talk about the World Wide Web. <laughs> it was a little bit slower, but it got it done, didn't it? And so from that, he deduced that there were great ocean currents and paths that were followed. And from that, Murray was able to develop his charts of the ocean currents the paths of the sea, which greatly aided to the science of marine navigation. In 1855, Murray wrote the first textbook on modern ocean oceanography. I loved oceanography when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, he's the father of it. People were talking about various things about that, but because of this one verse, Psalm 8, 8, he actually wrote a textbook on one area of science. Because of his belief. And it's called the physical geography of the sea and its meteorology. In this work, Murray presented oceanography from a delightfully Christian view. He included biblical passages of meteorology and other scientific importance, such as a scripture quote from the book of Job 28-25, which refers to God making the weight for the winds. He explained the biblical statement this way. <clears throat> Though the fact that the air has weight is uh, here so distantly announced in Job, philosophers never recognized the fact until within comparatively a recent period and, they, uh, and then it was proclaimed by them as a great discovery. <laughs> in other words, he said, they think it's a great discovery. It's been in the Bible all along. Nevertheless, the fact was set forth as distinctly in the book of nature as it is in the book of Revelation. Uh, for the infant, in availing its, uh, its self of atmospheric pressure to draw milk from its mother's breast, 
unconsciously proclaimed it. So even down to something that natural as a baby being fed by its mother, <laughs> this principle holds true, and it all was in God's Word. And this, this could get into my favorite, my favorite parts here. Murray, subs we're going to conclude here. Murray subsequently prepared charts of the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean between the United States and Europe, which showed the practicability of laying undersea cables, which they did. Murray died in 1873. He was elected to the Hall of Fame for Great Americans, and a monument erected in his honor, a monument, a monument uh, avenue, rich in Richmond, Virginia, reads, Matthew Fontaine Murray, pathfinder of the seas, the genius who first snatched from the oceans and atmosphere the secret of their laws. His inspiration? The Holy Writ. Psalm 8.8. That just amazes me. It's often claimed that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, yet the Bible's accuracy when touching on scientific subjects it is accurately and has led many great scientists, including Matthew Murray, to some outstanding scientific discoveries. I hope this gives you some confidence <laughs> to defend your faith and to stand firm on Scripture to show that you don't have to be put down because of your belief of Scripture, that you can actually be an intelligent person and be a Christian, and have your faith in God. And if you like this kind of study, you can go to uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. It's all put together. AnswersInGenesis.org. And there's tons of information about that. There's tons of resources, and I'm going to be referring to some of those over the weeks to come. But sometimes our, our faith just needs a pickup. We still have our faith but we want something tangible from it, and this is something tangible. And, and friends, if we're going to save our culture of this day, if we're going to save the youth in our church and the church as a whole, we're going to have to find more of these things and put those ourselves into our kids' brains because nobody else is going to do it. They're going to feed them full of lies that are not true and are not consistent with God's Word. So let's stand firm and let's give them a reason for why we can have this kind of faith. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You that Your Word can, can be so deep and so strong for our lives and, and, and in a practical way also. And it also can say much about the world around us. Father, we just pray that you would help us to be the kind of people you would have us to be. That we could stand up on faith. That we could stand sure and firm and say this is my belief and this is why and not back down when we're challenged. But graciously and gently state the truth. Father, help us in this. 
Help us to be the best follower of Christ that we can be in every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.